0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. It says in the 25th verse, so David paid Arana 600 shekels of gold for the site. If you have a King James Version, it's probably using the name Ornan. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel. There was an angel there, and we'll explain that in just a minute. And he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. Now, I want to think about the threshing floor of Ornan or the threshing floor of Arana in a metaphorical way. Naturally, we do that with Old Testament stories, don't we? We read them and we see things there that how does this apply to us? because so many of those things just kind of remind us of the unfolding of God's plan in the ultimate arrival of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this story, there's something that happens to David as he goes to the threshing floor. There's many things that happen to him, multiple things that happen to him. And I've entitled my sermon, What Happens at the Threshing Floor? Because I think metaphorically, as I started to say, we have a responsibility at some point in our life, maybe at multiple points, to find our way to the threshing floor. And what happened to David when he got there are things that can happen to you and to me when we decide to surrender and go to the threshing floor. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the story It's making sense. For those of you who are not, I'm going to now help flesh this out so you understand what I'm speaking about. What is this threshing floor? Why do things happen to people that go to the threshing floor? So the first thing that I can say, observe from this story, that happens to David because of his experience of going to the threshing floor is he has an awakening. And that's something that we need in our experience of going to the threshing floor. See, David had it in his mind to number Israel, or that is, just take a census. He'd been blessed by God and had a a successful time as king. He had his failures. We read about those. They're not hidden. But he was a good king. He was a successful king. And... Throughout his life, we have these episodes where it proves that David knew who God was and knew his power, and these marvelous stories are spun out of this relationship of this godly king with the God of Israel. So it's a little bit shocking that David in his old age, just a few years left to serve as king, a few years left here on earth he gets this idea that I think I'll just take a census and find out how strong our military is. This doesn't translate into our culture today in a way that we immediately understand the dynamics of it. Because we're probably saying, so what? But you have to give some allowance for this particular situation circumstances, and for the implication of David's attitude in doing this, and realize that the bottom line is, as much as I can't see anything inherently wrong with counting your soldiers, it's very clearly implied in this story that that was not the right thing for David to do. And as I mentioned, it had a lot to do with his attitude, and that is the attitude being He had always always trusted God. Now it appears as though by numbering the military, he's not really relying on God. He's trying to find out how strong we are. If we go to war, can we win this war? Well, it doesn't make any difference. If God's on your side and he's blessing you, you're going to win. So it doesn't matter. So God sees the heart of David where he's beginning to turn away from simply trusting God and say, I don't care if I've got five soldiers or 5,000. God is providing for us. But he decides, I just want to know how strong our military is. Maybe he was looking to those numbers for his security. And it wasn't a good idea. He should have he known better. And First of all, the clues that we have from the story that that he should have known better is it says in the first part of this chapter that Satan stood up against Israel and enticed David to number Israel. Now, this is the analysis of the events. Is it hindsight? Is it spiritual insight? What is it? But... The background on this is, the way this all came about is, Satan tempted David to number Israel. David numbered Israel as a result of the enemy tempting him to do that, yet somehow he did not recognize it was the enemy tempting him to do that. So he did it anyway. He may have even passed it off as, this is God telling me. Now, is this unsettling to you to consider that maybe the enemy can tempt you to do something that you don't recognize it's the enemy tempting you to do it? Does it unnerve you to think you might do something Satan suggests you to do, thinking this is a great idea? But how demented, how separated from God, how dead in our spirit do we have to be to take a suggestion from the enemy and not recognize it as a suggestion from the enemy? To not recognize it as a bad idea. Yet you know how many people go with the suggestions of hell? As a pastor... I have had those kind of people in those situations in my office talking to people, realizing that the thing that they are thinking about, the thing they are preparing to do, the thing they are sold on, they think it's a wonderful idea. And to me, it's obvious all over this, this is bad. God is not telling you to do this. And I don't know if I can share with you clear enough for you to understand my frustration when you can't get the point across. When you just have to watch somebody do what they're going to do because they want to do it. And you realize God's not behind this, but they think it's great. And that's frustrating. So, you know, you people need to give me some permission that if you ever get in that position... You say, Pastor, this is what you can do. And then I'll know that I'm blind, I'm missing it. So come up with something, be it a slap upside the head or whatever. Give me the permission. And when it comes to that desperate moment where you're just not listening to God, that we can really get down to business and clear the cobwebs out and think of this thing straight. So the first indicator is Satan tempted him. And the king, the man who walked with God, the man who was after God's own heart, here's the suggestion of Satan and gets up and tells his, his workers, he says, i got a good idea. Let's count the military. The second clue we have is Joab, his right-hand man, Recognized this was a foolish project. This is the man that David relied on. He hired him, he placed them there so he could rely on him. He could give him counsel. Watch out for me, Joab. I need somebody to be my sanity check once in a while. Well, that was Joab's job. And the king shares, I'm going to number Israel, and Joab is doing his job. He's stepping up to the king and saying, This is bad. Let's don't do this. This, God is not going to bless this. As a matter of fact, here's his words. He says, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why do you, king, why do you want to do this? Are they not all your servants? And here's here's the bottom line. Joab telling the king, why must you cause Israel to? to sin. Somebody had clarity of thought here. And we have David who's not recognizing what the voice of the enemy is. And we have David that's not recognizing his trusted right-hand man. He's not honoring and listening to his right-hand man. David is out there somewhere. And we are hard-pressed to figure how he could get his mind so dulled and his spirit so closed off that he could be in a position not to listen to wise counsel and not to have any spiritual discernment and to proceed with this. David doesn't buy it. So he counts Israel, sends out the people to do the census. Ultimately, as I kind of move ahead on this story, just to to give us an understanding how this is all coming about, he numbers Israel and God says, now that you have displeased me, I'm going to have to bring judgment. And I'll give you a choice of judgment. How many of you, when you were growing up, were were in a home where uh, corporal punishment was allowed? How many of you ever got a, a spanking? How many of you ever got a choice on your type of punishment? Okay, you can either take a spanking or you can have uh, a grounding or you can. There are no good choices when you're in that situation. I hate having to choose my punishment. Just sneak up on me and do it but I don't want to be a part of this deliberate process. It hurts. And God knows that dynamic because this was all a part of the anxiety that David was going to have to experience when God could have just sent judgment, but he said, no, I'm going to make you choose what kind of punishment you want. I don't want any of it. You don't understand. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months being pursued by your enemy and losing every battle, you're going to have three days at my hands. What's that mean, at my hands? You know, if, if I were a child and my father said, you can either have one week grounding or you and me can go in the room for three hours and you're mine for three hours. I don't, you know what, what is he going to do to me? This is kind of open-ended. Three hands. David thinks about it and says, I guess the best of bad choices is I'll, I'll, I'll do three days at the hands of the Lord and just hope that somehow he loves me enough he doesn't kill me. Now, that's that's how David ultimately has to come to this threshing floor. That's, that's how whenever the plague from the Lord starts sweeping through the land and killing people that David scrambles now to make a sacrifice before the Lord. And and I've I've got more to say about that, but I want to keep this clear in your mind what is developing here. And going to that threshing floor, which he he, he found a spot that'd be suitable for a sacrifice and he bought that threshing floor which uh, once again I say I will expound on on, uh, uh, on that in a minute but in coming to the threshing floor this was a place as my first point says a place of a revelation a place of an awakening this whole process where suddenly he realizes he's done something wrong And that's what we need so desperately in the lives of people today. We need people to have this crisis moment where they have an awakening that what they're doing is wrong. I was just sharing this morning when I was visiting uh, with some other people. A few years ago, there was a there was a case that was being tried in court the son of one of our parishioners was being tried for murder and i went down to the courtroom and i sat through that trial several days this man that was being tried for murder he and his gay lover had taken in another man into their home took a wood mall while the man was sleeping and bludgeoned him to death packed him up stole the man's car now that he was dead they took his car hauled him out east somewhere came to a, a barren desolate place and took the body out took a hammer knocked the teeth out to try and remove all the dental records and set the body on fire and continued on. They eventually got caught, and now he was on trial for murder. I went to visit him in jail. And he, he told me, he said, I need you to pray for me. I said, well, what do you want me to pray about? He said, well, they're going to send me to prison And he said, I, because of my lifestyle, he said, "Uh, I will be in a prison full of males. And he said, I have a problem with lusting after men. And he said, "Uh, I don't know how I'm going to survive. So I got real curious. I said, slow down, wait a minute. What makes you think that's wrong for you to lust? after these men. Now, don't get me wrong. I know it's wrong. I want to know why he thinks it's wrong. Because now he's having a change of heart. and I didn't tell him. He said, because I've been reading my Bible. I said, and? He said, well, the Bible very clearly says this is wrong. I said, you mean nobody else has told you this? He said, no. He said, I just read the Bible. And so I made sure with my questions that he had acknowledged his sins and taking Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, but that this whole thing about the revelation. The reason I share this is because I marvel at the spiritual revelation that comes to people. That he didn't have to have somebody come and sit down and tell him what you're doing is wrong. But the revelation of coming to that point, he went to the threshing floor. He was in the process of getting somewhere where he realized God was not happy with him. And he had a revelation. You people here today, that you declared Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, you only were able to do that because you had a revelation that you were a sinner. It's the only way. You could have continued to live like you were living, thinking you were all right, and never had an, a, a, an awakening and a realization you needed even to be forgiven or saved. And I don't know what's happening in this day and age, but it seems like it's getting harder and harder for people to have an awakening in their life that what they have been doing outside of God and away from God is wrong, sinful, and they need a remedy for that, and therefore saying, who can take away the guilt? Who can forgive me for the wrong? And we use I used, in my ministry, in my lifetime, I've seen that numerous times, but I'm seeing it less and less today. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm in anxiety over this. I, I question myself all the time. Am I preaching over their head? Am I failing to deliver the clear message of Jesus Christ? Am I failing to explain to people we're all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior because when we preach week after week after week after week and year after year and we see people coming in that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and they pick up their belongings and they walk out of the church and they go on, I think, how can we sit under the anointing preaching of the Word and not be convicted for our wrongs and not come and say, I'm a dying sinner, I'm bound for hell, I need to be saved. How does this happen? How do we get so dull in our understanding that we think maybe just going to church is good for us somehow? And we ought to do that once in a while. It kind of improves the quality of our life and not come to the point where we realize like has been written by people in, 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 in songs and in sermons. I was once a sinner. But I came, pardoned to receive from the Lord, expressing these things. I had an awakening. I realized Without God, I had no hope in this world or in the life to come. Where's the awakening? Every human being needs an awakening. We need a revelation about our sinfulness. We need a revelation about our lostness. And I think sometimes the first thing people do is they begin to think, well, I'm not a bad person. Why does he want me to say I'm a sinner? I've never hurt anybody. I don't steal from people. I don't say bad things very often. I don't think bad thoughts very often. I'm a good person. I'm kind to people. I'm not hateful. I don't go around beating people up. I'm not mean. I'm just a nice person. But I remind you the Bible says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. And the very best day that any one of us can have falls short Of the glory of God or the expectation of God for us. And we have no hope of ever making it to heaven by our own merit. By being good enough. The only way we have any hope is by casting our life on Jesus Christ and His righteousness. My righteousness doesn't get it. But His righteousness can save me. Because He was perfect. He never sinned. He never did a single thing wrong. I need Him. We need an awakening. We need an awakening like the prodigal son. Can you imagine the way his mind worked? He has no remorse about going to his father and saying, I want my portion of the inheritance. Do you think this old farmer had a safe at the house where he kept an equivalent of the value of everything he owned? And all he had to do is go open the safe up, pull the cash out and give it to the, man, to the young man and say, it's yours, do what you want with it. I don't know what the man had to go through to come up with the son's share of the inheritance. But you can't slice off a piece of land and give it to him and say, go, take it, it's yours. You can't just give him half of your cattle or, or half of your crop. He, the, the, when, the man, when the young man comes and says, I want half my inheritance, the father has every right to say, you don't understand. Everything that you're going to get, I'm still using. Put it in modern service. I still need my tractors. I still need my combine. I'm still farming this land, and you want your portion of it. How do you come up with it? It didn't bother that young man a bit to demand that. I don't care. It's mine. I want it. Didn't bother his conscience at all to put that burden on his father or his family. Didn't bother his conscience at all to say, I'm leaving this little two-bit family and this farm. I'm sick and tired of milking the cows. I'm tired of working dawn to dusk. I'm going to go find a life somewhere. Give me what's mine. I'm cutting out of here. And you guys can pick up the slack somehow, hire somebody. I don't care. Split the chores between you. Didn't bother him. No remorse. Didn't bother him, having been raised in this little bubble To step outside that bubble, go to the city, take his inheritance and start spending it like water going through his hands. On the parties, on the gambling, on the women, buying for all his friends. Didn't bother him that this, all that his family had worked for and all he was ever going to get was just going through his hands. Didn't bother. It didn't bother him until he ran out of money and he ran out of friends and he found himself hungry and didn't know where to go and what to do and decided that even the slop that they were feeding to the pigs looked good now. I've never been so hungry that the pig slop looked good to me. But I have a friend that he, at one time he was telling about how he was hungry And he didn't have any money to buy any food. He was just a young man trying to make his way in whatever way he was going through life. At that time, I think he was a starving musician. He would look in the garbage cans for pieces of food at the fast food restaurants. Maybe a piece of chicken somebody threw away wasn't all eaten. Maybe a half of a hamburger somebody threw away wasn't all eaten. Now, I've, I've, I've been around those garbage cans at the fast food restaurants. I can tell you, it takes a lot of desperation to be rummaging around in there to find food somebody else threw away and want to eat it. But when you get hungry enough, that junk begins to look good to you. This young man was so desperate, so hungry, so needy, even the pig food. He thought, I'll just feed myself with that. And then he had this awakening. And why is it? We have to get that far down in life sometimes. Some people, I don't want you to be sleeping with the pigs before you have a wake-up call. I don't want you to be eating the husks before you have a wake-up call. I want you to have a wake-up call here, now, today, when you say, I realize I'm not good enough, I need a Savior. But don't wait until you go down to the bottom to suddenly look up and say, my goodness, I think I need some help in my life. You don't have to go that far. But sometimes people do go that far. And he had an awakening. And it dawned on him, as he was trying to feed himself, the same junk the pigs were eating, that just maybe he ought to go back home and seek forgiveness. An awakening. Why is it people go so far and wait so long Go so far into sin's country before they have this awakening. Why is it that sometimes people have to lose almost everything they have in life before they have a wake up call? Why is it they have to lose their marriage? Why is it they have to lose their children? Why is it they have to wreck their health before they have a wake up call? Why is it the drug addict has to be told by the doctor, You've only got a few days to live, you got hepatitis? Your liver's gone. Why is it the drunkard has to be told your liver's turned to, to uh, leather before they have this wake-up call? Why is it that the partier has to realize you've, been, you've contracted a deadly disease because of your lifestyle before they have a wake-up call? Say, well, I think I need some help. You needed help a long time ago. Why is it? Some people have to be on the verge of losing everything before they realize I need help. David turned his conscience off. He surrendered to the voice of the tempter. He rejected the voice of truth. He rejected the wisdom from Joab. He was hooked. He was blinded by the enemy. He was not going to listen to his closest friend or his trusted advisor. And he just was bent on doing what he wanted to do. He would not listen to reason. That goes back to my counseling sessions when people, they're, they're going to do what they're going to do and you, it doesn't make any difference. What you tell them, they got their mind made up. and You can't change their mind. And David had this awakening because whenever the curse, that plague began to sweep through and immediately the first head count that comes back to the palace is 70,000 people have died. David said, I think I made a mistake. That would have been nice to have listened to your friend 70,000 people ago. Now people are dying, and now you have an awakening. God says, David, you want numbers? I'll give you numbers. 70,000 are dead, and I'm not done yet. That black bill of mortality was enough to shake the king awake. And he says, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. Innocent people are dying. I must do something. The second thing is this threshing floor brings about repentance it's a place of repentance up to this point we know that David now is relenting but we don't know that he's repenting you know you can do that I see people all the time that they want to change their lifestyle but they haven't repented relenting is not repenting just trying to give it up on your own is not repenting but David comes to a place of not only having relented but he now realizes he has to repent. A woman might decide to quit cheating on her husband because she's afraid she might get caught. That's relenting, but that's not repenting. David hears the number of innocent people in the kingdom who have died because of his stubborn, and now he's driven to repentance. He's sorry now. The logical place to make the sacrifice would have been in Gibeon. That's where they made sacrifices. But Gibeon was seven, eight miles away. And David didn't have time to make the seven, eight-mile journey. He needed another place. And for those of you that might be thinking that there's just a certain place where you have to go to get right with God... I'll tell you, when you're desperate and you're ready, right now is the time. It doesn't make any difference. And if some of you, if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, you might be going through the week and the Holy Spirit begins to deal with you, and you think, you know what, I can't wait till Sunday. I'm going to go to church and get saved. You don't have to go to Gibeon. You can do it right there. All you have to do is just stop and say, Lord... I am a failure, I'm a sinner, I need your salvation, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness. Come and fill me, Lord. I accept you. I surrender to you. You can do it right there. Well, David didn't have time to go to Gibeon. Things were desperate. People were dying. The plague was still going through the kingdom. And this angel that is kind of overseeing What is going on? We don't know if he's directly smiting people. It was a plague. But there's this angel that has his sword drawn, the Bible says. And it's over Jerusalem and he's about to smite the city. The 70,000 people has been groups of people in various places throughout the land. But now the beloved city. Now Jerusalem. And the angel is there with his sword drawn. And just before he's ready to smite the city and thousands more are going to die, God says... Stop not yet. You can almost you can almost see the angel just frozen there because in complete obedience to the great master of the universe, he holds that sword, but trembling with the tension, ready to destroy. And God says, Not yet, hold it just a minute. Go to the threshing floor. And the angel goes to the threshing floor. And David sees this somehow. God gives him the ability to see this angel. And he looks and he sees this angel hovering over this area that belongs to Arana. It's a threshing floor. The Bible says the angel was perched there between heaven and earth. And his sword was drawn but was frozen by the command of God. And David sees that and he's drawn to the threshing floor. I've got to go there. He brings his men and he starts to the threshing floor to Rana, sees them coming, it's the king. He doesn't ever get a visit from the king. People rarely get a visit from the king. He's he's honored. To what do I owe? This visit from the royalty, my king. He asks him, king, what can I do for you? He goes and bows before him. David said, I need to buy your threshing floor. Now, Arana, just like any one of us, is so overwhelmed that the king would come to his house. He says, king, I can't charge you. You're my king. I can't charge you for my land. It's yours. Take it. It may have been the only land he had. I don't know. But, he, I mean, this, this man is honoring the king. And David says this, and this is the, one of the most famous lessons and things we've ever heard from Scripture, and it's certainly from the lips of David. When Arana says you can have it, David says, I can't do that. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Now hold on to that thought. What David said in that moment has lived for centuries. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. This place of repentance where David can't go to Gibeon. He's going to make the sacrifice locally. And he goes to... He goes to a a man's spot in the middle of his farm. Gibeon was a Levitical city. It was a city of priests. It's where they would normally go to make the sacrifices. It was a city that... These inhabitants of Gibeon sided with Joshua as they fought that famous battle, where five prominent kings from southern Palestine joined forces against Joshua, and Joshua took in the people of Gibeon, and they fought, and they won that war. And historians say that may have been the most important war in the entire history of humanity, Gibeon. but he can't go to Gibeon. And Gad comes to him and tells him, let's go to the threshing floor. The location's perfect for a makeshift altar. And David goes because he's truly repentant. Number three, this threshing floor experience is a place where we learn the true meaning of sacrifice. Sacrifice. I don't know if we know what sacrifice means. Do you know what sacrifice means? Truly, honestly, do you know what sacrifice means? I listened to a a missionary tell the story. It was on the mission field. And this little girl came To Where their mission camp was And she got some food And David the missionary Followed her back To where she was taking the food And they were living in a big concrete tube Her And her little brother And he observed from a distance As this little girl went in there And took the food And fed her little brother Every bite She was just as hungry as he was And his heart broke. And I can remember as he tells the story. He said to himself. Little girl. I've just seen. What sacrificial love looks like. Not a bite for herself. Not let's split it. Not 75-25 or 25-75. Every morsel. For her brother. Do you know what sacrifice really means? We give, and sometimes we give conveniently, and sometimes we give generously, but I don't think we very often give sacrificially. I don't think we understand sacrifice. When it comes to God and presenting ourselves before Him, when we have that threshing floor experience, I think some people give. And they give conveniently to God. And they give generously to God. But I don't think many understand what it means to give sacrificially. And David discovers, coming out from his inner being, somewhere buried deep down inside of there was enough of God and enough of spiritual wisdom and understanding, his immediate response to Arana was right on I'll give it to you, king. And he could have have said, that's handy, that's good. God bless you. God's going to bless you for giving to me. You'll receive sevenfold in return. And David said, I can't do that. He didn't have anybody there to impress. He just knew in his heart, I can't do that. If I don't give something that costs me something, it's worthless. I have to give something that's precious in value or I have no appreciation for having given it. It's like one of you going out and somebody hands you $100 to come down and give to the church and you give it and you feel like you gave it. You didn't give anything. You were the messenger. And part of the problem with this modern prosperity gospel is it doesn't preach anything about sacrifice. It preaches investment. If you give to the Lord, the Lord will give back to you. Who wouldn't go for that? But who's going to raise anything by standing up and saying, people, if you give sacrificially, you're probably going to hurt for doing this. Now let's take up an offering. You're probably going to give up that thing you were wanting to buy, but let's take up an offering. You're probably going to live without for a while, but let's take up an offering. When you come to God, unless you understand what sacrifice is, you'll never enter into that fellowship and worship of God till you realize you have to suffer when you sacrifice. I can't charge my king. The land's yours for free. No, I can't do that, Arana. Let me paraphrase this I will not worship without cost. And that sure puts a different spin on our worship of God, doesn't it? I'll come to church if the conditions are good for me. I'll give if I don't need that money. Or I will not worship without cost. And that mentality is in direct contrast to the popular 21st century mentality I will not worship if it does cost me something. It's got to be free, no obligations. I'll go and find a church where they don't expect anything of me, I'll worship there. Cheap Christianity is in high demand today. It seems people are more interested in fire insurance than they are discipleship. They want a crown, but they're not interested in the cross. They want to worship, but they don't want to work. They want to find a church that suits their needs, but they don't want to find a church that they can help row the boat. They want to call Christ Savior. They just don't want to bother with calling him Lord. They want to worship without cost. They fail to realize that some very fundamental things about this, that Christianity is not something you say, it's something you do. It's an ongoing process by which we are transformed day to day from being the wretched creatures that we used to be into being the image of Christ. That's going to hurt. I guarantee you it's going to be an inconvenience in your life. But you can't just come to Christ and say, let me be what I want to be. I just want to go to heaven when it's all over. Because if you want to be turned into the image of Christ, you're going to be smashed by the master potter and remade into the one he wants you to be. David bore the responsibility for the failure and he realized he had to bear the responsibility for the sacrifice. This threshing floor was that place where David came to understand the meaning of true sacrifice. First of all, the sacrifice, as I have just spoken, has to be of value. And the second thing, it has to be personal. If you read this story carefully, David the king did not say to his men, All right, guys, build me an altar here. Go over there and get those two oxen and cut them up for me. And the king in his royal robe sits over to the side and makes the commands. Now throw the oxen on the fire and let's see if God's pleased. David ignored his entourage. And the king in the royal robe prepares himself as he methodically builds the altar. His own hand. As the king himself goes over to the oxen. Takes out the knife and slits the throat. And the blood spurts everywhere. By the time the king has killed those oxen. And cut them up. He's covered in blood. His clothes are stained in the blood. His hands are sticky with the blood. His sandals, his feet, he's wading in blood. And he himself, the royal king, builds the altar, kills the animals, cuts them up, and places them on there because your sacrifice has to be personal. You can't have somebody else do your sacrifice for you. You did the wrong. wrong. You must do the sacrifice. Now, in a sense, that's true in a sense in which we must come to Christ, nobody else can come to Christ for you. But there's another sense in which that has been superseded, and that is all the blood and all the junk that went along with it. Somebody else did take care of that for you. And He became the Lamb of God, slain for the sinners of the world. And now your personal part doesn't involve slaughtering the oxen and building the altar. Your personal part involves you personally coming to Jesus and saying, I surrender all to you because he did it all for you. The final thing, and it's a very quick point, the first one was that it is a place of Awareness, a place of revelation, a place of self discovery. As you discover things about yourself, you will learn no place else. But the last point is it's a place of God discovery. The king has no majesty on a threshing floor, he's just another man. He's left his royal dignity behind. This was a place of confession, it was a, com- place, of com- a place of complete humility, it was a place of sacrifice and a place of equalization where it didn't matter he was a king, he was a sinner. And whether you're a king or a pauper, we're all equally reduced to this complete state of worthlessness when we come to make sacrifice before God. Kings don't make a sacrifice at a different altar. They must go through the same door that the pauper goes through. It's a place of everybody becomes equal. Everybody becomes common like any common man who has sinned. The king is humbled to make his own sacrifice before God. You must kneel at the same altar that the greatest people in the world and the least people in the world have knelt at because we're all the same when we come before God. His royalty carried no sway before the Lord. He had sinned and as a man who has sinned he was a sinner. So David moves with haste. A small campfire won't suffice. It's got to be a big fire. Cuts the animal into manageable-sized pieces and loads those pieces up on the fire. And the acrid odor of singed hair and burning flesh begin to fill the air. And the greasy smoke rises to the nostrils of God. And God recognizes the sacrifice. And the Bible says sends fire down to acknowledge. And he tells the angel, put your sword back in the sheath. It's over. We're done. The sacrifice is good. And that's what Jesus did. When death reigned over us, And he died on the cross. And the moment that the sacrifice was complete and Jesus breathed his last and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And God said to the angel of death, Put your sword back in the sheath. Nobody ever again will need to die. If they come to the threshing floor of Jesus. For them the death is over. The plague is stayed. You don't have to die. And pay the penalty for your sins. If you come to Jesus. This parcel of land that David bought. Do you realize 1,000 years earlier. That was the very spot. Where Abraham had taken his son. And placed him upon the altar. And prepared him for sacrifice. And raised the knife ready to give it to God until he was interrupted by the sound of the ram in the thickets and God made a provision. That was the place. Do you realize that's the place, that threshing floor? Or because David bought it, it was now in the royal family, his son Solomon kept that place and he said that'd be a perfect place for a temple. And Solomon built his temple there on the side of that threshing floor. And for Years and years, every sacrifice that was made was made there where Abraham made a sacrifice, where David made a sacrifice. But eventually there was no more temple. Solomon's temple was gone. Herod built a temple. Eventually it would be gone. But Jesus, the sacrifice, the one who is given for all and once and for all. There on that hill called Golgotha, that place of the skull. It wasn't a bull, it wasn't a goat, it wasn't a pair of oxen. It was the Lamb of God, beaten and whipped and forced to carry His own cross. But there on that hill, the Son of God was nailed between a, to a wooden plank and raised up between heaven and earth. And God saw it. And God accepted it. And metaphorically speaking, those who go to Calvary, those who go to the cross... You'll meet God there. The sacrifice will be complete. And you will find God. If you call upon Him, your sins will be forgiven. Your slate will be wiped clean. Your failures will be forgotten. And your new life begins. And it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the plague of death will be stopped in your life by your heads.